speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we are in a time and a place in a culture where there are a lot of voices that we hear, a lot of messages that are being pumped into our minds and our hearts. And so we ask again, Lord, that you would speak clearly to every person in this room and to us as a church, that in the midst of all of the noise, we would be able to hear the words of life and follow and live. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Consider these statements. God has really softened my heart toward refugees. I read a story about a homeless child and it broke my heart. My heart goes out to the persecuted church. The worship at my church really engages my heart. To have a fruitful prayer life, your heart must be in it. We hear statements like this all the time. We make them ourselves. And when we do, using the heart as part of our phrase, we're trying to communicate something of great importance and value to us. You see, the heart in Scripture is the core part of a human being. It's the seed of the emotions, yes, but it's more than that. It's our will, our decision-making, our beliefs, our character are all formed in and out of the heart. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Inside Out, that depicts um, this control room of this little girl's life, and it depicts it as the head, and it really kind of reduces everything down to emotions. So I think it reduces it a bit, but that idea of being a control room for a human life is a good picture of the heart. We also know from Scripture that the heart can be rather wild and untamed. Great beauty and love and kindness can flow out of our hearts, but so can great evil. And deception and words that tear down and destroy also flow from the heart. Well, we know when we become Christians that God begins to do something in our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. He actually comes to dwell in our hearts. He takes up his abode in our control room, thanks be to God. And he's in the process of growing godly character in us and transforming us more and more by his love. But even as we grow in Christ, it's still difficult to fully understand our hearts, is it not? We might think that we have control over the control room, but we don't. We don't always know where our hearts really are. We might make those statements like the ones I mentioned in the beginning, reflecting our best understanding of our hearts, what we think we care about, what we think it's important to us, but how can we know for sure? Proverbs 19 says, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. Well, it's a good thing to understand our hearts, to understand where they are and what they're dwelling on. 
And the main reason for this is that we might further offer them to the loving lordship of Jesus Christ, that he might bring his correction, that he might bring his transformation and his joy and his peace and all the things that come when he's taken up residence in us. So it's a good thing. We want to understand our hearts, but often when we do, our default approaches are either to use our emotions or our rationality. Our emotions are irrationality. And some say that women default more to emotions and men default more to rationality, but it's a mix in all of us. Well, certainly that can help. It's good to be emotionally self-aware. It's good to think through certain things, but neither one of those is foolproof. You see, our emotions are fickle. We often feel conflicting emotions, right? And our thinking can be very muddled. It can be deceived even. So we need a more reliable guide to understand the heart and its purposes. We need that insight that the Proverbs speak about. Well, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a critical insight that we need to understand our own hearts. But it might come as a surprise of what he brings up. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's my heart? What do I really care about? What's really important to me? What's really motivating me? What is controlling my control room? You want to find out? Follow your treasure. Follow your treasure, and there you will find your heart. Jesus' insight is both a hard word and a hopeful word. A hard word and a hopeful word. It's a hard word because sometimes when we follow our treasure, we discover that our heart is not where we thought it was, nor where we want it to be. We may discover, as the famous hymn says, that our hearts are prone to wander. Oh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Following our treasure can reveal that. So it's a hard word. But it's also a hopeful word because it gives us a tangible, practical way to actually direct our hearts, to have some control over where they go. We're able to actually act on the hard word and begin to direct our hearts where we think they should be, and that gives us hope. We can control our treasure and understand it more easily than we can control and understand our hearts. Let me give an example to flesh this out a little bit. Let's say that you feel a particular burden or conviction about um, helping victims of sex trafficking. It's a huge problem in our world. It's actually a big problem in the state of North Carolina. But when you follow your treasure... And treasure here is more than just money. It includes that. We're going to spend some more time on that. But think money, time, energy, focus, goals. When you follow your treasure, you realize that it's not at all invested in helping victims of sex trafficking. And so you can't say in any meaningful way that your heart is actually there. Now, you may have had a genuine feeling of compassion. You may have had a genuine feeling of godly indignation, godly anger towards what you hear is happening. But you can't authentically say your heart is there because your treasure is not. 
And that's a hard word. It's a convicting word. But you have control over your treasure. You are not the victim of your bank account or your calendar. You can decide where to invest your time, your money, your energy, your focus, your prayers. God is giving us this wonderful authority over our own lives. And so let's say you begin to direct your treasure towards helping victims of sex trafficking. And a year or two later, you look at your heart and you discover that lo and behold, it is truly with those victims. Your emotions are with them, your thoughts are with them, your prayers are with them, but most revealing, your treasure is with them. You see, Jesus has the ultimate goal of getting our hearts in the right place. That's what he's on about here. And he calls this place the kingdom of God. He wants our hearts fully located and operating in the kingdom of God. His kingdom is characterized by personal intimacy with the king, with doing his will, and working out his purposes in the world. But Jesus knows to get our hearts into the right place, into the kingdom, he needs to direct our treasure. And so he's going to teach us about treasure. He's going to tell us how we build treasure, how we invest in the right ways and in the wrong ways. This is some of the most valuable and practical teaching we can ever receive, and it has everything to do with our hearts. And so if you have your Bibles and you haven't already, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's actually the teaching that he gives that leads up to this insight we saw in verse 21 about the connection between heart and treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, he's saying, listen, get your treasure right and your heart will be in the right place. So to unpack this teaching, let me begin with a general definition of treasure, and then we'll look at what it means to store up treasure on earth versus storing up treasure in heaven. A general definition. A treasure is anything that we value, seek after, and want to protect or preserve. A treasure is anything that we value, seek after, and want to protect or preserve. So money is the obvious example, and that probably is what Jesus had in mind, at least in part. It fits the context of the passage. We value money. It can buy certain things. It can provide a certain type of comfort and security. I'm not sure it's the right type, but it can. It can uh, lead to power, to prestige, to connections, to relationships. It can open all sorts of doors. It's valuable in that sense, and so we seek after it. But then once we acquire it, we want to protect it. And we have all these different ways of wanting to protect it. Maybe that's in a safe. Maybe that's under the mattress. Maybe that's in an FDIC insured bank account. Or maybe a sound um, financial investment. Though after this week it makes you wonder if such a thing exists. Well money for many of us is something we treasure. But it's not the only kind of treasure. Our reputation can also be a treasure. A good reputation is something we value. We seek after it. And once we have a good reputation, we have good likability among people, we want to preserve that. You can surely think of some others. Um, 
your education, your career, your relationships, other worldly comforts and material things like a house or a car, taking a vacation, all of these are things that we value, we seek after them, and we want to protect or preserve. So that's a general definition. And let me just pause and and get you to engage your thoughts here. What is something that you treasure? Bring to mind something or a few things in your life that you treasure. You value it, you spend your time, energy seeking after it, and you want to protect and preserve it. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't forbid the storing up of treasures, does he? He actually commands us, lay up for yourselves treasures. It's just that he wants us to do it in heaven, not on earth. He wants us to lay up the right treasures in the right place, not the wrong treasures in the wrong place. And so how do we know if we're storing up earthly treasures or heavenly treasures? That's the key question. That reveals where our hearts are. Well, to answer that question, we need to understand two things. Who determines the value of a treasure and when does that treasure pay out its reward? Who determines the value of the treasure and when does the treasure pay out its reward? By answering that, we can figure out, is it a heavenly treasure, is it an earthly treasure? So let's start with earthly treasure. Something is an earthly treasure if the world determines its value and it pays out its rewards in this life only. Something's an earthly treasure if the world determines its value and it pays out its reward, its benefits in this life only. So let's apply this to some of our examples. Money. The world definitely tells us that money is valuable. It screams it at us. It tells us in so many different ways, money is valuable. Seek after money. So the world determines its value and it pays out great rewards in this life, doesn't it? But only in this life. Money will have no value in the world to come. So money, by that test, would be an earthly treasure. Reputation. Again, the world tells us reputation can be incredibly valuable. Your favor with people, what people think of you, is like a type of currency. But its reward, again, is paid out in this life only. Your good reputation, your popularity, your networks, it's not going to pay out any rewards beyond this life. It's an earthly treasure. And I think you can apply the same test to career, to education, to home, car, whatever, and see that each of them in their own way is an earthly treasure. Their value is determined by the world, and they pay out rewards in this life only. Now, it's important to say that nothing I've mentioned, money, career, reputation, whatever, it's, they're not bad. They're not evil. Jesus doesn't say, don't have these things. He doesn't say, don't use these things. He simply says, don't make them your treasure. Don't make the goal of your life to acquire these kinds of treasures. All of those things have their uses, and God gives each of them to us in the right measure, but he doesn't want us to treasure them because that's not where he wants our hearts to be. Remember, this is about the heart. Jesus is telling us this because he's protecting our hearts. He doesn't want us to store up treasures on earth because he doesn't want our hearts to be crushed, both in this life and in the life to come. 
In this life, all of the earthly treasures we've mentioned, money, education, career, home, all of those can be taken away. One scholar pointed out that moth stands for nature, rust stands for time, and thieves stand for other human beings. Nature, time, other people, they can be threats to these earthly kind of treasures. They can take them away or destroy them. Stock markets fall, need I illustrate. Money can be lost. Knowledge can be forgotten as old age comes on, if we have some sort of brain injury. Careers can be ended like that. Reputations can be stolen. Don't put your hope in these things. Don't make them your treasure because your heart will be in this life incredibly insecure and eventually it will be crushed. And then Jesus is also thinking about the life to come. You won't receive any rewards from these earthly treasures. You might enjoy some benefits now, but you get absolutely no benefit in the life to come. Your money, it's not going to help you in the next life. The writer Randy Alcorn tells the story of John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. After his death, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? The response was telling. He left behind all of it. Every single one of us leaves behind all of it. Doesn't matter how much or little we have. Making money our treasure provides zero reward in eternity. And Jesus is trying to protect us from that disappointment. Sometimes we're a little bit better at identifying and therefore resisting um, sort of the material versions of treasuring something. We can say, oh yes, um, money we know, and I think it's still pretty powerful, but we can sometimes point it out. We don't want to just get all about the material things, but it's the immaterial things that sometimes are a bit more subtle and I think seep into our thinking and begin to affect um, how we treasure things. So what about reputation? Or maybe a slightly different form of reputation. What about this idea of making a lasting contribution to society? Sometimes we make our treasure, our life goals, what we can accomplish. Sometimes what we can accomplish for God or sometimes what we can accomplish in in some larger societal sense. That makes sense, right? Don't we want to live for those kind of things, the kind of things that would be listed in our obituary, the kind of things that people would say, well, they did this and this, and we remember them for this and this. It's a lot more subtle, but I think that can easily become a form of storing up treasures on earth. This summer on my sabbatical, I got to visit Scotland. Never been there before. And one of the reasons I wanted to go was because of this connection to family history. My father and my grandfather had done a lot of family research, and they suspected that the direct Forster line that I'm a part of came from Scotland. And we knew that there were um, two sites near Edinburgh that were built by Forsters. One was a castle, another a church, probably both about 500 years old. Well, when we were there, Paisley and I got to visit both, but I was a little surprised by what I found. The castle was down a dirt road. There was no sign. The only reason I knew it was there is I found this obscure genealogical website. You walk down this road, even as we started walking down the road, we thought we were getting lost. We didn't know if we were going to get to the place. We asked another person out walking, is there a castle down here? You thought you'd be able to see it, right? A big castle. And they said, oh yeah, you just keep going down a little bit more. There was no historical marker 
about the Forster family. It was not a tourist destination, I can assure you. The structure itself was in bad shape. It was falling in, and there was uh, graffiti on it. The church was also hard to find. It was an interesting piece of church architecture. But again, I found virtually nothing about Forsters. I did find one fading family crest that I happened to recognize. More importantly, there was no active worshiping congregation. It was a dead church. The members of that church were all around me with rotting bodies in the ground. The only sign of life practically that I saw was a guy throwing a ball to his dog in the churchyard. You might say, well, how historically interesting to be able to visit these structures that had some connection to your family. But you see, to me, it wasn't just historical interest. In a deeper way, visiting those sites was a search for identity and significance and value. I grew up with a lot of pride in being a Forster. I heard stories of my ancestors who were doctors and lawyers and generals and politicians and, yes, even preachers. And this shaped the narrative of my life. And even today, I see in myself this strong drive to find my significance in being important in the world in some way and making some lasting contribution to society like my ancestors did. Well, those empty structures in Scotland spoke a powerful word to me about what becomes of a life that makes worldly reputation and contribution its greatest treasure. It will be a life that is empty and forgotten. Moth and rust and other human beings will have their way. They will diminish and destroy even the greatest of human accomplishments. All good reputations will be forgotten. We sometimes find our treasure in these kind of self-important ways and what we can contribute. We sometimes think it seems virtuous and noble and the world would agree with us, but in Scripture, God lovingly reminds us that the lives of human beings are like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field and then the wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Jesus cares deeply for our hearts. And so he says, don't store up your treasures on earth. You're going to be disappointed. Your heart will be crushed. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What is a heavenly treasure? It's the opposite of a worldly one. Remember our test. Who determines the value of a treasure and when does it pay out its reward? The value of a heavenly treasure is determined not by the world, but by God, what's important to him. And its reward is paid out, not primarily in this life, but in the life to come. And as I mentioned, Jesus calls this realm of heavenly treasure, sort of big idea for it, is the kingdom of God. There's other, a parable that compares treasure found in a field to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, make your life's pursuit the kingdom of God. Later in the same passage, he'll say, seek the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things, yeah, they'll be added to you. I'll take care of those. You seek the kingdom of God. It's the only treasure worthy of our heart's full investment. And the reason for that is our hearts were actually designed to flourish in the kingdom of God and nowhere else. 
There's no other place you can put your heart that it will flourish and come alive because it's designed for one place only. So Jesus says, direct your treasure there, lay up your treasure there, and your heart will be in the right place. Well, the kingdom of God is an exciting idea. It's Jesus' favorite topic in the Synoptic Gospels over and over and over. He's talking about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, depending on your version. He tells numerous parables about it. But what practically would it look like to store up treasures in this kingdom, to make the kingdom itself your treasure? I want to give just a simple approach that will help us remember how we can go about that practically in our daily lives. It's three things. Look up, look around, look ahead. Look up, look around, look ahead. First, you look up. You look up to God, and you ask this question, what do you want? What's important to you? If that's the determining value of a heavenly treasure, we need to know what pleases God. So we look up to him, and he reveals it to us. He does that primarily through his scriptures. Stories and stories, scriptures and scriptures, the one big story, all telling about who God is and what he wants, what makes him tick. And then he reinforces that through his church and through one's prayer life and one's community. These are ways that we have to understand what God wants from us. We know generally very well some things that please God. Uh, Repentance and faith, turning away from sin, placing our faith in him, and then cultivating this love relationship with the king. That's right at the heart of the kingdom of God. We know that God cares deeply about mercy and justice, especially for those who are widows, orphans who are poor or somehow have reached the fringes or been pushed to the fringes of society. God cares for them. God cares about his body, the people of God, what we call the church. He cares about it functioning properly. He cares about people using their gifts, as Lawrence read for us in 1 Corinthians 12. He wants it to look like this beautiful, well-functioning, fruitful body. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the goodness of gathering together, the power of gathering together, and yet the habit we fall into of not gathering together. Generally speaking, God desires every one of his children to have an active, living relationship in the life of a local church. We know that God cares about the lost, the lost sheep, those who don't know the saving truth of the gospel. He cares deeply about them. We also know that God cares about human culture. You know, we often fall into this secular, sacred uh, divide, right? This, these, you know, church things or holy things, that's important to God, and all this other stuff can kind of go to hell in a handbasket. Well, that's not how God sees it. If you really go back and you begin to study the scriptures from early on, you you realize that God cares about the shalom, the peace, the well-being of the whole earth and what's going on. We know from the scriptures that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so God cares about how we're uh, participating in just society at large. He cares about law. He cares about commerce and banking and art and music. He cares about creation care. This is all working out one of his original mandates for us, to be stewards of the earth, to rule over it. So these are general examples. They get a lot more specific as they press down into our lives, and that's where we need community and we need prayer. We need to understand, but we begin by looking up and saying, God, what is your will? What pleases you? What are you calling me to do? And then second, we look around. And as we look around, we ask this question, what can I use? 
What can I use? And this is where we pull back in those things that the earthly treasures, that the world calls treasures, things like money, reputation, education, career, home, car, relationships. Jesus doesn't forbid us having these things. He just said, don't make them your treasure. The reason why is they're not very good treasures, but they are very good tools. They're very useful. Money is incredibly useful in this life. And God gives some of it to each of us, not to treasure, but to use. It's what we call stewardship. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God, but he's given it kind of into our authority to make decisions and to use it in ways that please him and prioritize and lift up the kingdom of God. The same would be true of your reputation or your career. So you look around and you say, what has God given me to use in my life? The tangible, material things, the intangible things. It's all given to you to store up treasures in heaven, to prioritize the kingdom of God. So you look up, you look around, and finally, you look ahead. In order to truly get into this dynamic of storing up treasures in heaven, we have to look forward to the rewards. There's nothing wrong with wanting rewards, with wanting to hear that verbal affirmation of the Father, with wanting to get benefits from our investments. God created us like that. Again, Jesus commands us to lay up for ourselves treasures. It's just that he wants to orient our lives towards the right rewards. This life is important. This life does matter. Our decisions here means something, but this life, the form of this world, is not the lasting one. God is going to usher in this new way of life, this new reality, and it will endure forever. And in that time, we'll be able to look back and really see how our lives here and really the whole history of the world was important, and yet it was momentary. So how foolish would it be of us to seek rewards only for this life because it's so fleeting? Rather, The wisest course of action, whether it's for our money or time or indeed our lives, would be to invest them and to expect returns in this greater reality. It's already broken into the world, but it's coming in full force in good time. We must set our eyes on those benefits, not what we can receive right now, but to truly live for the joy and the blessing that is coming. And Scripture in various ways affirms this posture. Hebrews 11 It's talking about how all these different people live in faith. And it describes Moses when he says, He, Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. How do you not get caught up in the earthly treasures? You look forward to the heavenly treasures. That's what Moses did. He was a prince in Egypt. He had it all. But he didn't look to those things. He set his eyes on something greater. That involves a lot of delayed gratification, doesn't it? The world doesn't believe in the kingdom of God. The world believes we're here by accident, make the best of it. And so, of course, the world is just going to take all the stuff here and try to seek some meaning and goodness out of it. But we confess the very core of our faith that Christ is the center of history and that he's returning and he's going to establish a new world that will endure forever. And so we must discipline ourselves and our spending habits and our investment and our goals to line up with that greater reality. 
That's how we store up treasures in heaven. Look up, look around, look ahead. So we've talked a lot about treasure. Well, this is really a sermon about the heart. We're at the beginning of a new year. I want to propose a question for each of us. Where do you want your heart to be in 2016? Where do you want your heart to be? What do you want to move it closer towards? It's the Lord's desire for you that your heart would be alive, that it would be flourishing and free and joyful in his kingdom. And that can look so many different ways. Well, to move our hearts further into that realm of his kingdom, Jesus has given us this very practical teaching. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts are hard to understand, let alone direct. But we can understand and control our money, our time, our energy, our focus. And so as we do that towards the real treasure of the kingdom, we will find that our hearts are dwelling there as well. And they are alive, and they are secure, and they are ready to receive all of the rewards that God has for us in this life, partially, but mostly in the life to come.